الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا وحبيبنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله We come to another month of Faith Circle where we will be focusing for this entire month on the greatest human being that Allah has ever created. His name is mentioned every moment that passes in the universe. SubhanAllah. Not a moment passes, but his name is mentioned. If you think about it, the Mu'addin proclaims throughout the entire globe, Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah from atop the mountaintops, from atop the highest of minarets, from the different masajid, from east to west, from north to south, from New Zealand to the Arctic of Canada. The name of the Messenger of Allah is praised. Every moment, millions if not billions of believers are sending peace and salutations upon this human being, this blessed human being. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala nabiyana Muhammad. He's praised on earth and he's praised in heaven. As Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Al-Ahzab, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَمَلَائِكَتَهُ يُصَلُّونَ عَلَى النَّبِيِّ يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا صَلُّوا عَلَيْهِ وَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا This verse is so unique because in it is a command for us. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا O you who believe. But this is the only command of Ya Ayyuhalladina Amanu that Allah proceeds by saying, He does this action. Allah does this action. So, O oh believers, you do the same action. What is this action? Allah Himself with the angels, they send salah upon the Prophet. And salah means praise here in this context with Allah. It means praise. Allah praises the Prophet ﷺ. The angels are making dua for Allah to praise him. They are praising the Prophet ﷺ. And on earth, of course, we are doing the same. And even those, even those who do not believe in the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, they praise his qualities, they praise his characteristics, they praise the light that he brought to this world because we will find so much of the world that we love and what we see today, so much of the world is credit is due first to Allah Azza wa Jal through the sending of Habib al-Mustafa, through the sending of the beloved, the chosen one who illuminated this world with light when it was filled with darkness. From a civilizational point of view, the force of Islam, the positive force of the Qur'an, as it civilized the globe, as it brought even Europe out of the dark ages. And so even those who may not know his name, they will praise and wonder and marvel at all that he brought to this world. He is known in the Qur'an as Rahmatan Alameen, a mercy to the worlds, Al-Alameen, to the worlds, not just human beings, but the jinn kind as well, and to the angels as well. He is a Rahmatan Alameen, and he is Nabiyur Rahmah, he is the prophet of love and compassion and mercy. He is described in the Qur'an, Yaseen, Wal-Qur'an Al-Hakim, Inna Kalamin Al-Mursaleen, Ala Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, 
Tanzil al-Aziz al-Rahim. That Allah said, describes the Prophet verily you are, and this is in Surah Yasin, and many people think this verse refers to the Qur'an, that is an interpretation. But other scholars of tafsir, they mention this refers to the Prophet That Allah says, Quran by the Qur'an, verily you are of the messengers, those who have been sent, upon the Sirat al-Mustaqim, upon the right path. Then Allah says, Tanzil al-Aziz al-Rahim, sent down from Al-Aziz and Al-Rahim, the one full of might and honor and glory and the one full of love and compassion. What has been sent down? The scholars differed. And many of them said, the Nabi wasallam himself was a gift to humanity from Allah Azza wa Jal. He sent him down. SubhanAllah, praising the Prophet wasallam. He's described in the Quran as Al-Mubashir. Mubashir, the one who gave the glad tidings, the one who gave the good news, the one who brought hope and optimism to this world, the one who brought a message that is a genuine reason for us to be able to smile through the difficulties and hardships of life. He is Al-Mubashir. He is of course as well Khatim Al-Nabiyyin. He is the last and final Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There is no prophet that will come after him. He was known even before he was a prophet as As-Sadiq Al-Ameen, as the trustworthy one and the truthful. As-Sadiq Al-Ameen. He is called in the Quran, Uswatun Hasana. Uswatun Hasana. That in the Messenger for us is, he is an Uswatun Hasana. He is a perfect example. He is a perfect role model for any situation, particularly for the one who hopes in Allah in the last day. The one who hopes in Allah in the last day. If you want to be in a good station with Allah, if you want to meet Allah Azza wa Jal, if you want to be in a good station on the next life, in the last day, then He is the one for us to follow. He is the one for us to be inspired from. He is the, he is the one whose quotes we hold on to as pearls and gems. He is the one we retweet. He is the one that we post in our WhatsApp groups. He is the one that we emulate and we follow and we understand His message and His way. He is, of course, as well, da'iyan ilallahi. He is the caller to Allah Azza wa Jal. He is the only genuine, truthful caller to Allah Azza wa Jal. Bringing all of humanity, min al-dhulumati ila nur The love of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam can only come from having knowledge of who the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was, is, and will be, as we're going to come to. How can we claim to love someone if we don't know them? And one of the signs that a person in their heart, they have a genuine love for the Prophet ﷺ, is their eagerness to learn about him. And this is a good sign for all of us here. And I give this as a bashara from all of us here, that we hope that Allah counts us of those whose hearts is filled with the love of his Nabi ﷺ. You all came this evening, it was advertised to learn about the Prophet ﷺ. I see a lot of new faces as well. So Alhamdulillah, that is the reason you came here. And so this is a sign of a heart that is yearning to know and to grow in their knowledge of the Prophet ﷺ. Knowing what he sacrificed, knowing how he lived, knowing how incredible of a human being he was, knowing as well about his love, about his love. 
The purest of hearts. One of the hardest things for a human being to do is actually genuinely love. What I mean genuinely love is many people love out of self-interest. There's, you know, strings attached. There's conditional love. We love because there's benefit coming to us. And we show these acts of love because we enjoy and we actually get benefit from it. We love our children, the joy that it brings to us. We love our parents, the blessings they give to us. We love our friends, the good times we share together. There's a reason. It's very hard for us to love someone or something that doesn't actually have anything to do with us. But the Prophet and even worse, or even more so, to love someone that hates you. To show love to someone, genuine love. When they've insulted you, when they've backbit you. SubhanAllah, how easy it is for us, may Allah protect us all, for us to cut off one another just with the smallest of things. SubhanAllah, he said this, they looked at me this way, did you see what they do at that wedding? Did they see what you did when they came to this dinner for this, this, this? Then khalas, finished, nobody's talking to each other for years, SubhanAllah. So genuine love for those who show wrong to you. That was the Prophet wasallam. And his love inspired people. It inspired people to embrace Islam. When those, when he conquered Mecca, and those who persecuted him and his followers, he met them with genuine love. And many of the companions, they testified at that moment, the Prophet ﷺ was the most hated person to them. And with that one encounter, one moment with the Prophet ﷺ, where they felt for that one moment, who the Prophet ﷺ was. Can you imagine that? Who amongst us, who else in, in one moment, in one phrase, that a person can switch from hating you to loving you? SubhanAllah. Imagine the aura that must have been around the Prophet ﷺ. Imagine the charisma. Imagine the genuineness that should, would have been on his face. That when he spoke, SubhanAllah, you could turn a heart from one to the complete opposite. So inshallah ta'ala and subhanallah, when we learned that, that his love was so expansive, it met even us. That he actually loved us. Without even having known who we are. And he actually, as we're going to come to, made dua for us. Before we even knew what a hereafter was, he was concerned for our hereafter. Before we, our parents even knew what the hereafter was. Subhanallah. The concern he had for his ummah. The nights he would stand in concern, genuine concern, making dua to Allah for his ummah. You can think, subhanallah, he's set, you know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven all of his sins, whatever has come before and whatever is after. But he still stood every night with such intense hardened, sincere du'as for his ummah. That was the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Inshallah ta'ala, in this class, I want to give a general overview of the description of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. How he looked physically, what kinds of clothes he used to wear, what types of foods he used to eat, how would he spend his time at his home and these sorts of things. And inshallah ta'ala, I wish to give a very brief overview of the context from which the Prophet ﷺ was born into, for us to appreciate the significance of this man. And then at the end, inshallah, we will conclude with understanding 
that the Prophet story has not ended yet, but his story continues into the next life. And we will be part of that story. His seerah is not over because he still has work to do for his ummah. He still has work to do for his ummah. And we will see him in the hereafter. And there's so much that we've learned and we understand who the Prophet is to us in the next life. So inshallah ta'ala, let us begin with the general appearance of the Prophet So Anas ibn Malik, who was of course the khadim of the Prophet he was the servant of the Prophet he gave a lot of descriptions of who the Prophet was, as well as other companions as well. So in terms of his height, he wasn't short, so he was tall, but he was not excessively tall. Number two, in terms of his complexion, his skin complexion, he wasn't excessively pale, nor was he excessively brown, but he had a tanned complexion, asmar al-lawn, asmar al-lawn, as it is described in the narrations. Look at this, it's interesting how Anas ibn Malik and others would describe the Prophet like he's the perfect in the middle, right? Like the Goldilocks perfect. It's interesting, we don't usually hear people describe people like this, but in almost every characteristic, you'll hear them describe it like this, between two extremes. The hair was not too curly, but nor was it completely straight. And at times the hair would reach to the earlobes, and at times it would reach to the shoulders. So he would have longer hair. His eyelashes were described as being quite long, which is of course a mark of beauty. And it has been described that it would look like he was wearing what they used to call kohol. In those times, kohol, and even in our times in different places, culturally, men would actually have this kohol, which is this kind of uh, black powder, you can say, that's put around the eye. Um, and it was seen as if he was wearing it, although he was not wearing it. It showed how long his eyelashes were. He had a full beard, and it could be seen from behind. So if you if he was in front of if he was Sallallahu was in front of you, you would be able to see the side of his beard. So he had a full beard, and the companions they would describe that during the salah they would see the beard of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam moving. Of course, because he's reciting the Quran, but they're from behind the Prophet Sallallahu So he had a full beard, and um, approximately twenty different uh, accounts, twenty twenty two gray hairs combined from the hair and the beard of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. SubhanAllah, can you imagine? Which other human figure in history do we have the details to the level where now we're talking about how many gray hairs was it? And of course, the reason for differences is of course as well, obviously counting you know, differences, but also the Prophet Sallallahu is obviously aging as well, and so there can be uh, reasons for those kind of discrepancies. His abdomen was described as flat. So subhanAllah, mashallah, you know, no, no gut, no pet, as they say in Urdu. He was, mashallah, very healthy and fit, and his abdomen was flat, a straight line. Uh, there was no protrusion. And he had broad shoulders, he had broad shoulders. He was described as having a wide forehead with full eyebrows, but they did not connect in the middle, so there was no unibrow. And he would have thickly boned hands and feet. So his digits would be quite thick. Um, and subhanAllah, he had a vein uh, that would be on his forehead that would become visible if he became angry. And we know his anger was only, not for himself, his anger was only if the rights of others or the rights of Allah Azza wa was trampled upon. And so he had that vein in the forehead. Does anyone have a vein on their forehead? 
Nobody wants to admit it. Oh, we have one in the back. Okay. You get angry often? <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. That's the general appearance of the Prophet ﷺ. In terms of his clothing, the clothing of the Prophet ﷺ. So, the hadith show us different garments that the Prophet ﷺ used to wear. So, it wasn't just one garment that he would wear all the time. He'd wear different types of garments. Um Salama radiallahu anha. And who's Um Salama? Not the daughter. The wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Um Salama radiallahu anha, um, she said the most beloved of garments to the Prophet sallallahu was al-qamis. Was a qamis. Now what is a qamis? In those time, a qamis referred to what's closest to it is actually not the thawb that we wear now, where it goes down to the ankles. But more so, closest to the kurta or the shawar qamis of the Indian uh, subcontinent people, um, where they would wear that as well as the, I think the Indonesians and the Malay also wear that type of shirt, if I'm not mistaken. But in any case, it is a shirt with long sleeves that goes to basically about the shin length. And one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ once remarked during the Hajj pilgrimage, how he saw the shins of the Prophet ﷺ radiating so brightly. And so we see that the garment of the Prophet ﷺ would come and it would expose his shins. Uh, so that's one. So Umm Salama said that this was the most beloved to the Prophet ﷺ. The second type of garment, Anas ibn Malik says this was the most beloved to the Prophet ﷺ, was what's known as a hibara. Now hibara is not a, uh, a structural, it's not different structurally necessarily to a qamis, but it's referring to the concept of a pattern design. So there would be a design to the, uh, to the actual qamis or whatever was wearing in the garment. So the Prophet ﷺ, it is said that he used to love wearing these, the hibara garments, the garments that had designs or patterns on them. And some of them are described as a red garment that had kind of red patterns and these sorts of things. A third garment the Prophet ﷺ was known to wear was a Yemeni Qitri wrap. So a Yemeni Qitriya wrap is something that can be wrapped around and it's particularly narrated actually towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ that when he came out, the Qitri Yemeni wrap was actually around his shoulders. This one was very interesting. And this was not a habit, but this was an incident that was reported. And it is said that this may have been on the battle of, towards the battle of Tabuk, which is interesting as well, because that was towards the Romans. The Prophet ﷺ once wore a Roman jubba. A Roman jubba, which was basically a Roman or Byzantine overcoat, or like a blazer, like this something I'm wearing, obviously not like this, but a Western garment essentially, and it would go over his qamis. And so you can imagine, you know, Byzantine and how they used to dress, and it was described very tight sleeves. So the Prophet wore this garment, very tight sleeves, and it was a Roman jubba. So there you go, Western uh, garments can be considered sunnah uh, as well. Um, and actually on that note, you know, and this is something Abdul Razak al-Badr mentions, many people mention this, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim as well, uh, but Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Badr mentions this in this particular narration as his commentary. Uh, that a person, what is sunnah is for a person to wear the clothes that is appropriate to their society. As long as they are not unlawful to wear, of course. As long as it fits the shari'i requirements of, you know, uh, modesty and also, you know, covering the awrah and these sorts of things. Or I should say covering the awrah and also modesty. 
then it, that is actually closer to the Sunnah because the Prophet didn't change, didn't make a Muslim way of dressing. He dressed in the way of the people and he wore different garments as they were coming towards him and had no problem even wearing a Roman garment, right? So this notion and this concept that if you want to be Muslim, if you want to be righteous, you have to dress in, you know, with thobe. I mean, considering the thobe was not really existing during the time of the Prophet ﷺ anyways, it has a lot more Persian influence to it actually. Uh, not even Arab, but of course it expanded throughout. Uh, so that's not a concept really. Obviously culturally, Muslims wear these sorts of things even within our gatherings and whatnot, so that's fine. But the point is that when you're out, the sunnah actually, and there's a hadith about this, a person should not dress in a way that they stand out. They should not dress in a way that they stand out. That's actually counter sunnah. So if you're going to like, going up to Harvey Bay or something, and like, I'm gonna rock my thobe and this, and wear everything, I mean, you're gonna stand out like a sore thumb, right? Uh, and that's actually counter sunnah. You're supposed to blend in and not be, you know, in that type of way where you're just, you know, wanting to do that. Um, Bismillah. The headwear of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Prophet sallallahu would wear a turban. And the most common turban he would wear would be the ones that you see, again, most, most common actually, more in the Indian subcontinent, which is the one that's wrapped around the head. And then there's a tail that comes down towards the back. So that was the most common type of uh, headwear amama that the Prophet ﷺ would wear, and it was described as black in color. Uh, at least uh, uh, the, the narrations that we have, some of them describe as black in color. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, in terms of his gait, his walking, there's a lot of interesting hadith actually about the walking of the Prophet ﷺ. So number one description was, he would walk very fast. Fast pace, it would be difficult for the companions to actually keep up with him. So he would walk quite fast. And it's described as if the earth is folding up for him. Like he's in one place and khalas he's another, as if the earth folded up for him. The second description is, um, he would lift his legs with vigor, as if he was descending from a high place. So he would lift his legs, like you would really see the stride of the Prophet and he would bend forward slightly as if he was descending from a high place. As if he was descending from a high place. Abu Hurairah narrates, I have not seen anything more beautiful than the Prophet He actually used the word shay, a thing, like not person. I have not seen anything more beautiful than the Prophet it was as if the brightness of the sun shone, shone from his face. I have not seen anyone walk faster than him. It was as if the earth would fold up for him. We found it difficult to keep up the pace when we walked with him, yet he walked at his normal pace, like he wouldn't be breathless. SubhanAllah. So you can see when a person walks, first of all, in that manner, they look like they're walking with a purpose, like they need to do something very important, right? That type of leaning forward, Walking, it's not leisurely walking like this, 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 like walking with a purpose and having that gait. And in these days, we actually find from a psychology point of view, they actually talk about with people who deal with self-esteem issues, people who deal with issues of low self-worth and even self-loathe and even fear as well. They talk about actually correcting your posture and correcting your gait because that shows and symbolizes to yourself how you feel your relationship is to the world. Like if you're small and defeated and this, 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 Versus if you are brave, courageous, and able to go into the world facing whatever uncertainty might come there. Now, the foods of the Prophet Now I want to address 
interestingly, there's this phenomenon that you see, especially online, of the Sunnah foods, right? And you'll see people, they'll say, you know, oh, this is the Talbina of the Prophet, this is this drink, this is the this and this and the bead and whatnot, and, and this is what the Prophet would, would eat, thinking that there's some specific blessing in the cuisine of the Prophet. Actually, one of the Tabi'un, they asked, you know, the companions about the food of the Prophet and they themselves said, you would not be able to handle it, so don't even try it. And this is not the point of Islam, of course. But subhanAllah, when you reflect on the food of the Prophet you just think, subhanAllah, the poverty that they experienced is truly unimaginable when you square it with how we live, subhanAllah. And you know, it should inspire us to be incredibly grateful to Allah Azza wa Jal. And to be inspired with such love for the Prophet and how simple he chose to live. Because if he wanted to, the world opened up for him. But he decided to continue to live in this particular manner. In terms of the staple food for the Prophet it was bread made from, does anyone know which grain or wheat? Barley. It was made from barley. He would, and that's of course of the cheapest type of bread. And that was the most common food that he would eat And they would have an idam, an idam. An idam is a dip essentially. So bread with a dip. And the Prophet ﷺ would describe once he came to one of the houses of his wives and he asked, is there anything essentially to eat the bread with? And they replied, there's nothing except for some vinegar. SubhanAllah, nothing except for some vinegar. And the Prophet ﷺ said, what an amazing uh, idam, what an amazing dip vinegar is. So some of the scholars, they say that he was saying this to console and just to be up and cheerful about the state of the household to the wives of the Prophet and they say, you know, to show like, oh, it's amazing, vinegar is incredible, that's, that's great. Others say, oh, it shows that he really loved vinegar. Allah Ta'ala, it seems to be more of the former than the latter, um, to show his adab as well and how he wanted to cheer up his wives who are a bit sad, all I can offer is the vinegar. So he says, oh no, amazing, vinegar is absolutely incredible. And he said that a, a home is not free of idam with a home that has vinegar in it. Um, he used to love gourd. So gourd types of you know, veggies or fruit, I don't know which one it is, like the pumpkins and the squash and these sorts of things, you know, leek and these, and these sorts of, um, you know, whatever you call them, fruits or vegetables. That was something the Prophet specifically loved. In fact, Anas ibn Malik, in one narration, he described he was at a dinner and he would pick out the gourds from his own meal and present it to the Prophet because he knew that the Prophet loved these types of foods. In terms of meat, it is said that he loved uh, the particular, the shoulder or the arm piece, the dira'a, or the arm or shoulder piece of the lamb. Now again, some of the ulama, they say, this is because of practicality. It's the easiest to cook and the easiest for availability. And so he preferred it so as to not burden the host that would host him. And it is narrated that the Prophet ﷺ, of course, loved honey and he loved halwa. Now halwa would include any sweet thing, fruit, you know, a sweet or a dessert or whatever it may be. Dates, of course, as well. Um, Subhanallah, I'll, I'll share with you an incident. Masruq, rahimahullah, uh, was a tabi'i and one of the main students of Aisha, radiallahu anha, said, I visited Aisha, radiallahu anha, and she ordered food for me. And then said, I never eat to my full except that I cry. Subhanallah. I mean, just pause and think there. Aisha, radiallahu anha, is there. And in her house... Next to her is the grave of the Prophet because of course the Prophet was buried in her own house. And you can imagine Aisha now, after the death of the Prophet 
the Islamic Empire is expanding, wealth is coming in, and the standard of living has been elevated for all the companions. And you find multiple, many companions, they narrate this feeling of a little bit of guilt, a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of whenever they felt any level of pleasure, they would immediately remember to the time of the Prophet ﷺ, especially, obviously, his wives who shared that hardship with him, and companions like Abu Huraira who sacrificed his livelihood, sitting in the masjid, you know, 24-7 glued to the Prophet ﷺ, so that he could narrate to, as he could learn and then narrate afterwards, he was only with the Prophet ﷺ two to three years, subhanAllah. And he is the most prolific hadith narrator. But, Masruq, uh, so Aisha said, uh, I don't eat to my full except that I cry. Masruq asked why? And she said, I remember the state of the Prophet ﷺ upon which he left us for the next world. I swear by Allah, he never filled his stomach twice in one day with meat or bread. SubhanAllah. That was the food of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, the laughter and humor of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, the laughter of the Prophet ﷺ was described, he never opened his mouth such that you could see his uvula. Like he didn't laugh in that manner, in that very excessive manner. His laughter was very dignified, but he would laugh. And it would be known to the companions that he was laughing and it was different than a smile. So it was like an intermediate smile to a laugh, but it was a, a, a big smile where you could see the molars of his teeth. So like a big smile that he would laugh uh, with. And, you know, he would joke with his companions. He would give, you know, good pet names to people. Like he called Anas ibn Malik, Ya Dhal Udunain, Oh, the one with two ears, right? Uh, and in fact, with Anas ibn Malik's younger brother, uh, who was known as Abba Umair, the Prophet, Anas ibn Malik narrates that the Prophet used to mix with my family to the extent, you know, he knew intimately about his siblings, even and his little brother. And he once said, to his little brother, Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'alan nughair. Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'alan nughair. Oh, you know, Abu Umair, what has happened to nughair? Why did he say this? Who is nughair? Does anyone know? Who is nughair? khairan. He was the pet bird of Abu Umair. And that pet bird had died. And so he saw that Abu Umair was sad about this. So the Prophet is now consoling this little kid about the death of his pet, subhanAllah. You know, think about that, how incredible that is for a leader of a state, for a leader of an ummah, for a religious leader, a, uh, uh, a political leader, uh, every, from every aspect, to have the ability to then empathize with something as small as the passing away of a deathbird. You know, we lo lose so much empathy and compassion. So many times we see someone, we say, ah, oh, this person, they're overreacting. Ah, oh, just get over it already. Ah, oh, it's just this. Oh, can you believe he's so sad? It's just a bird. Like that's our approach to things. We don't like to, we don't feel that, we don't spread that sense of compassion to others. And to, to at least put ourselves in their shoes. We're very quick to kind of look down on other people's suffering and whatnot and to minimize and say, oh, you shouldn't be sad. Why? Because it's annoying when other people are sad because it brings us down too. So we want everyone around us to be all cheery. It's selfish, right? But the Prophet subhanAllah shows that he had that jovial nature with him. You know, he also, also we know some of the jokes that the Prophet would make would always be truthful because he's a prophet of Allah after, after, at the end of the day. So he can never be accused of lying. 
So, but even still, he would find a way to be humorous in ways that were all truthful, which is a huge mark of intelligence as well. Humor itself is a very, you know, good humor is a marker of intelligence. And now to be able to be humorous and to make sure that you're telling only 100% the truth is itself another level. And so, of course, we know that incident where uh, the Prophet ﷺ said to the elderly woman, there are no old women in Jannah. And of course, then the elderly woman, what is she going to think? SubhanAllah, what is this? My whole life is coming down in front of me. And you think that, <laughs> what she's thinking with that, right? And the Prophet ﷺ then explained, everyone will be resurrected and they will be young, 33 years of old. Um, and as well, this one time, this one person asked the Prophet ﷺ, I need a ride, I need a mount. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I'll give you a, a child camel. Walad al-Naqa. Walad al-Naqa, like the child of a, of a she-camel, right? A child camel. I'll give you a little, like a little, that's what it's seen as, a child camel. Walad al-Naqa literally is the child of a female camel. But obviously in those days, if you said Walad al-Naqa, you mean a, a little kid, right? A little kid camel. And of course, how are you going to ride a kid camel? He said, what am I going to do with a Walad al-Naqa? And the Prophet said, isn't every camel Walad al-Naqa? <laughs> And so, isn't every, every camel is the son of a she-camel, wasn't that? And so that was the wordplay of the Prophet wasallam. We end in this section with bedtime stories with the Prophet wasallam. A very universal human activity of storytelling that exists across all cultures throughout history is storytelling. And in particular, humans love to hear stories at nighttime before they go to bed. What do we do with our children? Tell them a bedtime story, right? You know, we, we read them stories, we read them this, we go this, and some fond memories you may have of your own parents is remembering the time when you'd be tired and sleeping and your parent would come and read you your favorite storybook. So in those times, they didn't have storybooks, they didn't have Berenstain Bears and all this stuff back then, but we find from one beautiful anecdote that actually the Prophet ﷺ would tell stories with his wives, subhanAllah. And by the way, this storytelling doesn't leave us, by the way, before nighttime. I mean, many times as well, most people are most likely to binge on these series and operas towards the end of the night, right? They've done everything, they want to go to bed. Before they go to bed, they want to hear a good story or they want to watch a good story. So that kind of impulse continues till now. Allahumma sta'an. So Aisha reported, one night the Prophet ﷺ related an astonishing story to his wives. It wasn't actually said what the story was, but it just said an astonishing story. One of his wives commented, this story is as astonishing and as amazing as the stories of Khurafa. As the stories of Khurafa. Now, what is the stories of Khurafa? The Prophet ﷺ then asked the wives, do you know the original story of Khurafa? So, he will explain actually here. He was a man, so the Prophet is explaining. He was a man from the tribe of Udra, that a jinn kidnapped into their realm for a long period of time. And then when he returned to the human realm, he began to relate wonders and strange things. And after that, people would call any incredible story that was too much to handle, like the story of Khurafa. So the stories of Khurafa were basically a brand of stories. So literally it was like their, whatever you want to call it, fantasy series, their Lord of the Rings, you can say, which is the stories of Khurafa. And so the Prophet said, this, said one story and then the, 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 the wife said, oh, this sounds like a story of, of Khurafa. And the Prophet explained now the origin story of the stories of Khurafa. So subhanAllah, this is just a glimpse, just a glimpse into the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So just to conclude, the Prophet, the, the greatest calamity that anyone 
has ever gone through has already happened. The Prophet said that anyone who goes through calamity and hardship remember the greatest of calamities, which is the passing away of the Prophet And so our greatest calamity happened the moment we were born. The moment we were born was the greatest calamity because we were born into a world without the Prophet You know, subhanAllah, the Prophet on his last moments, he pulled the curtain because the masjid was connected to his house. And so literally a curtain separated the house of the Prophet from the masjid. And so he was on the floor on his deathbed. And the curtain, he pulled it. And he saw his ummah praying Salatul Fajr, led by Abu Bakr radiallahu an. And he looked at them one last glance and he smiled. He smiled. Knowing that he came what, we, what he had fulfilled and if he had chosen to, he would have stayed. But his love for Allah was at such a level that he wished for his companionship. Now the Prophet ﷺ throughout his life had his concern for you and I. One time during a janazah, during a funeral, the Prophet ﷺ, they were burying this companion. And the Prophet ﷺ at that moment says, in this moment of death when they're thinking and remembering about loss and you know that they won't be able to see this person again, he said, I would have loved to met our brothers, our brothers. They said, Oh Messenger of Allah, are we not your brothers? And he said, No, rather you are my companions, my Sahaba, my brothers are those who have not yet come. In another narration, those who will believe in me without having seen me. He was talking about all of us. The Prophet longed and yearned and missed us and wanted to meet us. And so he actually said to his ummah, meet me, find me at one of three places in the next life. Either the mizan, where they scale the good deeds, or the hawb, or the sirat. Now subhanAllah, look at this. You know, normally when anyone wants to meet someone, nobody wants to go out of their way to help someone when they're in a very difficult situation. You'd say, make the meeting in Jannah, right? I'll see you in Jannah. You know, get there, do your good works. Look at the three places the Prophet said, you'll find me there. And I'll try and make shafa'ah for you if it's in Allah's permission. And I'll try and advocate for you. And I will not take my seat in Jannah until I make my shafa'ah for every member of this ummah. The Prophet said, my shafa'ah is for the major sinners of this ummah. Meet me at the scales. Can you imagine at that moment in the scales, our own mothers and fathers and children and wives and friends Nafsi, nafsi, won't, not, nothing to do with us. But at that moment, which is our most vulnerable moment we will ever have in our entire life, is the vulnerability we will have on that day as the deeds are weighed up. The Prophet said, I will be there for you. Meet me there. He will be the only one, the only one, think about that, the love of this man, the only one who will actually care about your salvation in the next life in that time. He'll be the only one on his mind, ummati, 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 
Even the other prophets, as they're waiting for the Day of Judgment, they'll be thinking and concerned for themselves. Then he said, or you'll meet me at the Hawb. Now the Hawb is the pond or a, you know, a basin of water, a pond you can say of the Prophet ﷺ, whose water is coming from Al-Jannah. And at this pond, again, benefit for us. He will be there with a cup in his hand, ready to quench your thirst with a drink that will last eternity. You will never be thirsty after that. The Prophet ﷺ, when he remarked this point during that janazah, they said, O Messenger of Allah ﷺ, how will you know those of your ummah who come after you? How will you recognize them? How will you know who they are? How will you ever meet them? He said, if a man had a horse, now bear with this example, of course, it's with horses and whatnot from back then. If a man had a horse with a white blaze and white feet, situated among horses that are solid black. So basically, all the horses are black, there's one that obviously sticks out with its white feet and white blaze. Do you think we would be able to tell it apart? They said, of course. He said, likewise, they, he's referring to all of us, bidnillah, they will come on the day of judgment with radiant faces and with radiant white hands and feet. Why these body parts? Al-wudu from the traces of their wudu. And I will reach the hawd before them. 